welcome to Faith Church. Glad you're with us. My name is Matthew, one of the pastors here. So whether you're in the room or watching online, we're glad you are here. A quick show of hands. How many of you have already grabbed the Journey to Easter devotional or grabbed it offline, downloaded it? Wave your hand at me. Wave your Okay, look around at all the other heathens that aren't waving their hand just yet. Yeah. Hey, no, listen, we, we want you to journey with us. Starting tomorrow is when we are beginning this journey together. Uh, we want to honor the Lord and remember that this journey to Easter is remembering the death but also journeying to resurrection life. And so this journey has two major parts to it, this devotional. During the week, we want to fast and encounter uh, a death to ourselves, fasting and praying and getting into the scriptures together individually. Uh, And then on the weekends, we want to celebrate the resurrection. We want to remind ourselves that there is new life on the other side of it. And so there's a fellowship and communion component with this that we hope you will enjoy and participate in. Now, you can do it with just your family. That's true. But this second part, this fellowship and communion, it is designed to be a gathering that you would have where you would have someone else into your home, enjoy a meal together, laugh, celebrate, and then spend some time in communion and reflecting on some scriptures, some prayers, and literally taking communion together with others. That's how it's designed to be. So it's got two parts to it. The fasting, uh, where we kind of enter into and remember the death of the Lord, but then on the weekends, we celebrate the life and the resurrection that is to come and anticipating those things. And so for the next four weeks, this is what we are inviting you to participate in, and I hope you will join us in that. Uh, Matthew chapter 25 is where we're at, and we're actually at the end of Matthew 25 today. Uh, as a church, we've been walking through the gospel of Matthew. We, this is uh, the 49th week that we've been studying the book of Matthew together, looking at the theme, the King Jesus gospel. And uh, we're going to get into it here in just a minute. Matthew 25, verse 31 is where we'll be. Uh, Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about the arrival of Jesus and how we as followers of him are supposed to await his arrival. And uh, we've kind of looked at two things so far, and today we're going to look at a third. And so if you're taking notes, kind of here's been the big idea the last few weeks. And that's simply this. That we as followers of Jesus await the king's return, being filled with the advocate. That's the Holy Spirit. We are stewarding our assignments and we are active with a loving allegiance to the king. That's what we're going to talk about today. How do we await? We await with an active allegiance, a loving allegiance to the king but that's what we've covered the last few weeks and where we're going today Matthew 25 starting in verse 31 are you ready for the word all right here we go this is what the word says but when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him then he will sit upon his glorious throne all the nations will be gathered in his presence and he will separate the people As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, he will place the sheep at his right hand. Somebody say right hand. And the goats at his left. He will separate them out, right hand and left hand, sheep and goats. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we get to be called the sheep of your pasture. And Lord, that you are indeed the good shepherd. So, Lord, would you lead, guide us, and feed us in your word today, we pray. In your name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Friends, the first thing I want us to see in this text, and we're going to read some more of it, but I want to stop here and hit a few things before we move on. And that's simply this, that the king will come in glory. He says, when the Son of Man comes, now the Son of Man is just another title used throughout the collection of Scripture to refer to Jesus. It was a title that Jesus often used, most often used, in fact, to refer to himself. When the Son of Man comes, he is going to come 
in his glory. This, this coming. And then he articulates. It's going to be with all of the angels. He's going to sit on a glorious throne. We talked a couple weeks ago about how when Jesus returns, it's not going to be some silent event. It's going to be a well-announced uh, celebration that begins. And, and most often, Scripture, when it talks about the coming of the Lord, that word coming is the Greek word parousia, which is used all throughout Greek literature, specifically to talk about a royal processional. It's talking about a king coming after conquered a battle. A king who would be outside the city and as he's coming, the royal trumpeters would trumpet. The celebration would begin and the people will go out and meet him and walk into the city celebrating his royal arrival. Why? Because Jesus is the king. And when the king returns, we're going to celebrate his victory for eternity. He's going to return. And when he comes, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be wonderful. It's one coming. He's coming one more time. And when he comes, he's coming back as victor. He's coming back as the king who has conquered all. He's coming back to expand and extend his royal rule and reign for all eternity throughout every galaxy known and unknown in our midst. He is the coming king and he's coming in glory but I need you to understand something it's about his glory not your glory it's about his glory not your glory the Lord is not after your glory Jesus and the ways of Jesus are not about you getting your name famous and known he's not about helping you develop your clout in this in this culture some of you are like what is clout ask your teenager they'll tell you all about it He's not, off, he's not after that. He's not after your fame. He's after his glory, his namesake, his fame. It's so that his name could be renowned in our, our world, not your name can be renowned in all of the world. And when he comes, he comes in glory. But in the meantime, in the meantime, we get to be invited to be a prophetic people declaring his glory and renown right now. See, every time you lift your hands and you sing, you are giving a literal illustration to the people around you that God is worthy of it all. That his glory and his name are worth honoring, worth worshiping, and worth singing. Most people, if they look at your life, would they be able to tell that God is a king after glory? Or would he just be another person that you silently respect? That's true. I, I believe that, Lord. Yeah, that's a good word. Yep, holy. Holy is the Lord. That's a good one. Oh, it's time for communion. Let me grab some communion elements. But are you participating as a people, prophetically pointing to the reality that when the king comes, it's going to be a, a worship experience? See, see, Philippians chapter 2 says it like this. Therefore, God has elevated Jesus and given him the place of the highest honor. He gave him the name that's above every name. And at that name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And every, in heaven and on earth and even under the earth. He's talking about you and he's talking about every spiritual force in the world. Every principality, every demonic element and every angel. Every spiritual force and every human force will bow on earth, on heaven, under the earth. And every tongue will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory, not of you, not of me, but to the glory of God the Father. God is after his own glory. His name is worthy to be praised. And you might as well start participating now because you already know it's going to end that way. He already is telling you he's worthy of it in that way. And he's already seated high above all. And so we as the people of God in our awaiting his arrival, every time we enter into a time of corporate worship, we get to be the people who declare he is coming. He is worthy. His name is to be lifted high. 
and I'm giving him the highest praise because he is coming in glory. So we give him the glory that he's worthy of right now. Don't wait. Start now. Get in the habit of it. Start practicing now. Learn how to bow now. Learn how to sing out loud now. Learn how to clap your hands now. Learn how to shout now. Learn how to bow now. Learn how to lay down before him now. Learn how to sing out loud and make a joyful noise because most of us ain't making a good noise. It's just a joyful noise. And that's all right. Because he's the king and he's coming and he's worthy of glory. So until he comes in the meantime, we still participate and we get ready for his royal appearing when his glory is on full display for the world to see because you've caught a glimpse of his glory now. And so we behold him now and we sing to him now. The king is coming in glory. After it says the king is coming in glory, he says that he's going to sit on a throne and he is going to separate out the sheep and the goats. Now, now Jesus gets to do the separating, not you. Jesus gets to be the one to distinguish between those who are going to receive the right hand of blessing and those that are going to be on the left hand and be separated into a cursed darkness forever. He gets to do the separating. He gets to be the great shepherd, which means he can articulate and distinguish between the sheep and the goats. Now, I have a feeling sheep and goats have a little bit of inclination as to what's like if they're a sheep, if they're a goat, they, they might know a little bit of the distinction, but it's really the shepherd who gets to look and examine and say, this is a sheep and that is a goat. Now, I, I, while we talk about these sheep and goats, I, I must admit, that this passage really isn't about sheep and goats. This passage is really about Jesus, as are most passages in the Bible. But sheep and goats, I don't know that are necessarily particularly important, except that it is for us to understand that there is a clear distinction between a sheep and a goat. They are different. They are not the same. And it's not like there are multiple options. It's either sheep or a goat. It's not like something in between. It's not somebody that's like almost in, someone almost out. No, it's either you are in or you are out. You are separated to one side or the other. The sheep and goats, this is it. And it is the great shepherd who knows for certain whether you and I are a sheep or you and I are a goat. He's the one who knows. Now, I think the sheep and the goats are here to illustrate and help us see Jesus more clearly. Now, I, I, if I can just be a corny preacher for just a few minutes, I try not to be one very often, but I think it's important to note that Jesus is called the Lamb of God, not the goat of God. Is it any coincidence that in our world today, we are continually trying to identify humans of a heroic and sportsman nature and call them the goat because we're perhaps trying to articulate and find adulation and worship for a human when we're supposed to be beholding and giving glory to the lamb of God instead of the goat of man. Now, just in case you were wondering, Albert Pujols is the greatest hitter of all time. Yadier Molina is the greatest catcher of all time. Ozzie Smith is the greatest shortstop of all time. Tiger Woods is the greatest golfer of all time. Michael Jordan is the greatest guard of all time. And Tom Brady is easily hated by many. Just in case you were wondering. It's where we stand today on the subject Friends, I think it's very, very important that we not misunderstand that the whole point of this is to behold the glory and to give Jesus his due. And in our world, we easily find ways to give worship to men when our worship belongs to the Lamb of God. And I think it's worth us considering for just a minute that we get back to proper greatness. Now, in the Middle East... And even to this day, sheep and goats regularly would graze together. They would be in the same 
herd, the, the same flock. They would have the same shepherd overseeing them, but they would need to be separated at night so that the goats who were a little less hardy and covered could keep warm by the fire. That was the purpose for them being separated at night, the fire. See, the sheep were already warm because they were clothed in plenty of wool, while the others, the goats, needed fire at night. Friends, again, if I could just be a little bit cheesy in this moment and perhaps cliche, you can experience the fire of the Spirit today or experience the eternal fires of hell tomorrow. The choice is yours. You can either be warmed by being clothed by the wool and the righteousness of Christ or you will be consumed by the fires later. One will purify you today and the other will purge you because of evil tomorrow. Sheep or a goat. Isaiah 1 verse 18 says, Come now, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. They are red like crimson, but I will make them white as wool. You are a sheep or you are a goat. Revelation 1 verse 14 says his hair and his head were white like wool. It's talking about Jesus Christ. And his eyes were like flames of fire. Why? Because he's the judge and he is going to either baptize you in the spirit and fire today or he will separate you out to be purged by fire tomorrow. You are a sheep or you are a goat. And this wool of Christ, this wool of the sheep, this wool that is used and referenced throughout scripture, I believe is about followers of Jesus, people coming to Christ and being clothed in his righteousness. What is the distinguishing mark between a sheep and a goat? It's their wool. It's, it's, the, it's this coat. It's, and, and God is going to separate out. Jesus himself is going to separate us out, sheep and goats based on whether we are clothed in the wool of his righteousness or we are not scripture says in colossians 1 that it is christ in you that is the hope of all glory romans 5 17 through 19 look look at what this says it says for the sin of this one man adam caused death to rule over many but even greater is god's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man jesus christ Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. That's all of us. But because of one person who obeyed God, that's Jesus, it will make it possible for others to be made righteous. That's also us who have put our faith in Jesus so whether or not you are a sheep or a goat is whether or not you are being clothed in the righteousness of Christ or you have yet to be cleansed and washed by the righteousness of Christ there is a distinction there is a separation and this idea between righteous and unrighteous Jesus goes on to tell us about the distinctions of the two he says, I'm going to separate sheep and I'm going to separate goats. And he begins to tell us the distinction. Let's keep reading Matthew 25. Let's start in verse 34. Here's some of the distinctions. Then the king will say to those on his right, who were the ones on the right, the sheep or the goats? Come on, sheep or the goats? Very good. They were on the right. And I will say, come you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. 
Then these righteous ones replied, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink or or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? When When did we ever see you sick or in prison, Lord, and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Then the Lord will turn to those on the left and say, away with you, away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me drink. I I was a stranger and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick in prison and you didn't, didn't visit me. Then they will cry, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth. When you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. Jesus is beginning to articulate a distinction for us that we must pay attention to. As we begin to explore, this is kind of the section where Jesus is talking to us about having Christian compassion. He's, having, he's wanting us to have Christian compassion. Now, Christian compassion is a loving response as an embodied loyalty toward the king. Christian compassion is having loyalty and love for the king. This is the distinction that Jesus is making. I've heard that a great definition of love is to will the good of another. A great definition for God's love is to sacrifice, to serve, to to, to do something for the good of another. Not for your own good. Not for how it makes you feel. Not to give you the warm and fuzzy. Not to make you feel like you did a good thing. But because of the goodwill that you are desiring and wishing and longing for, for someone else. Now, I, I want to be really clear here, as best I can. When I serve, when I give, when I'm caring for other people, when I pray for other people, when I visit other people, I'm not doing those things because I love people. I'm doing them because I love God. Christian compassion is at its core about properly loving God. See, love for God is embodied and visible as I love people. In other words, it is possible to do something for other people that looks like love, but not love God. It is not possible to love God and not love people. Are we tracking? I know it's a little deep on a Sunday morning after you lost an hour of sleep, but track with me for a minute. It is possible to show kindness, generosity, care, concern for other people and not love God. But it is not possible to love God and then not show kindness, care, and compassion to other people. And at the end of the day, it's about honoring God and loving God and allowing that love for God to be embodied in how I love and serve and care for other people. Jesus said it this way, when you gave the cup of cold water in his name, you did it to him. In other words, we look around the family of God and see someone in need and say, oh, let me demonstrate my love for God in caring for them because in caring for them, I am caring for God. Well, how is that possible? Because you and I together are the body of Christ. You are not the body of Christ. You've heard me say it before. I know culture wants, I know Christian culture wants you to think that you are the church. You are not the church. We together are the church. The gathered people of God are the church. You are a part 
of the body of Christ, but you are not the sum totality of the body of Christ. You are a part of the body of Christ. You are not the body of Christ. You are not the church. You are a part of the church. And when we care for one another, we are caring for the body of Christ. We are caring for Christ himself. One one commentary said it like this. The moving identification of Jesus with his brothers here recalls the principle of what he taught in Matthew chapter 10 when he told us that receiving a disciple was receiving Jesus in his name. And it is a cup of water given to one of the least, the little ones because he is my disciple. That is what will be rewarded. In that case, the criterion of judgment is not mere philanthropy, as good as it is, but people's response to the kingdom of heaven as they have met in the person of Jesus' brothers. Philanthropy and empathy, hear me, are humanistic approaches to Christian and brotherly love, but they are not Christian and brotherly love, as good as they are. They are empty good works, as the Bible would call them. They are motivated out of human decency and a sense of thinking, well, no one really deserves that plight. But that's a humanistic understanding. Did you know that um, the word empathy is not a biblical one? It's a humanistic one? Oh, it's a buzzword in our culture today. The Bible talks about having mercy. The Bible talks about having compassion. The Bible talks about wrath. The Bible talks about um, uh, pity. The Bible talks about grace. The Bible talks about forgiveness, but it does not talk about empathy. Those are humanistic approaches to what God has said is to be our brotherly love. They they are empty. In fact, uh, we are not making judgments whether someone deserves good things or not. We are simply, because when we do that, we are making a determination based. I'm closing my eyes because I got to think and say it right. Uh, We are making a determination based on what we think is good and evil. But there was a tree that we ate from called the knowledge of good and evil. And that's what got us in this mess to begin with. It's about eating from the tree of life, of about recognizing the life that God gives us. It's about being clothed in the righteousness of God. It's about loving God. We love God and God loves us. And the motivation is different. So when we demonstrate our compassion to brothers and sisters in Christ, we are demonstrating our love for God and being motivated by our love for God. We are not being motivated for our own benefit. Philanthropy and empathy and all of those things, those those are as good as they might seem, The end result is either them having glory or us getting glory, not God getting the glory. And when I love someone in the family of God who I don't think much of, I don't really like, I don't care, I don't know, but I'm going to give and serve and be a part of, caring for, tending to, feeding, clothing, visiting, praying for, I am doing that not because I love me and not necessarily because I love them, but because I love God. The motivation and the motivational fact is different. It's about a stewardship. It's not about the what. It's about the how and the why of our stewardship and our care. Pastor Daniel Grothy, a friend of mine, says it like this. Good spiritual practices become bad when we practice them for the wrong reasons. That's why in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told us about having holy secrecy when we're doing good for somebody else. It's when we give God permission to quietly borrow our strength for the good of others. It's a holy secrecy in how we're giving. Now, most of us have heard these passages taught. Myself too. And when we hear them taught, we're like, God says to love the least of these. And he does say that. But the sentence doesn't stop there, does it? He didn't say those who you love the least of these among your society, then you're doing it to me. That's not what he said. Is it? Open your Bibles and look. What you do to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you're doing to me. 
I've said it before and I'll say it again. I realize it's not popular to say and I realize it's not our own popular thought. Not every person is in the family of God. Not every person in our world as conservative and Christian-esque values as they might have. Not every human is a child of God. Every human is created with the capacity to bear the image of God and to be a container for the spirit of God, but not everyone is a child of God. John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, but to all who believed in him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. John 15, verse 12 and 14, and this is my commandment, love each other in the same way I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Jesus is giving us the distinction. He says, the world will know you are my disciples by the way you show love for one another he didn't say the world will know you're my disciples by the way you show love for the world around you showing love to the world around you is not a bad thing that's a good thing it's great but that's not what he's talking about And I don't have a problem. I think we ought to to do kind things. We ought to show benevolence. We ought to be generous and care and uh, think about feeding the hungry all around the world. I I believe in all of those things. My, my, My press today is to remind you of the priority of taking and caring for and loving and serving and befriending and forgiving the people of God. We've lived in a world where we feel like we can treat the family of God any way we want because they're a bunch of hypocrites and heathens and have hurt us rather than recognizing that that's the very thing that God says is how he's going to look at you at the end of time and judge you and judge me. Not based on how you treated people who believed different, thought different, and and wanted nothing to do with God, but how you treated and served and cared for the family of God. He said, it's the least of these, my brothers and sisters. Who are the people that you feel are insignificant in the church that you attend? You'd pray for somebody if you knew their name, but if you didn't know their name, you're like, yeah, I don't don't know. I don't know that I really want to pray for I don't know them. They're a bit of a stranger to me. See, the family is the body of Christ. And 1 Corinthians 3 tells us about being judged for how we treat and engage in the family of God. Part of the stewardship accountability that we give to God at the end of time is how we love, serve, care for, befriend, and engage with the family of God that he's placed us in. There's an element in this that we cannot miss. In fact, Wayne Grudem Theologian and professor says it like this. Do Christians, in fact, eagerly long for Christ's return? That's what we've been talking about. How do we long for Christ's return? The more Christians are caught up in enjoying the good things of this life, and the more they neglect genuine Christian fellowship and their personal relationships with Christ, the less they will long for his return. On the other hand, many Christians who are experiencing suffering or persecution or who are elderly and infirmed as well as those whose daily walk with Christ is vital and deep will have a more intense longing for his return. To some extent, the degree to which we have actually longed for Christ's return is a measure of the spiritual condition of our lives at the moment. It also gives some measure of the degree to which we see the world as it really is, as God sees it, in bondage to sin and rebellion against God and in the power of the evil one's grasp. In other words, he's trying to articulate friends If we are going to eagerly await the king's return, we eagerly await active in our love for God as we care for the people of God. And Jesus lists several things in this text of how and when we're supposed to care. Several scenarios where brothers and sisters in the faith might be in need of love and care and compassion from you and from me. Now, to be, to be fair, 
the reason Jesus is talking about visiting people in prison and clothing them who are naked is, is because most of those scenarios would have occurred because of persecution that was coming against the church, against the people of God. They were put in a substandard set of living. They were put at a social disadvantage. They were often beaten and clothed. And and if you were in prison, the only way you survived prison is if someone on the outside brought you food, brought you clothing, and took care of you. You would have died in prison. They didn't feed you automatically in prison. You wanted to eat, you had to have people on the outside caring for you. Why would Christians be put in prison? Because they refused to give allegiance to the king of their land and instead were giving their allegiance to Jesus as king alone. And it would land them in persecution. It would land them in beating. It would land them in prison. It would land them in a place where they didn't have food, where they didn't have clothing, where, where they were traveling from one place to the other and could have easily been robbed if they had to sleep outside under the stars. But instead, other Christians would recognize other Christians and be like, oh, you're traveling? Come, be in my home. Let me feed you and help keep you safe. We are in this together. There was a compassion and a brotherly kindness that was demonstrated. Now, it's true. Like, we don't have very many vagabonds passing through our town. And we certainly don't have many Christ followers who are passing through town who are traveling and stranger to you. It's, it's very, very true. But can I ask you a question? Do you know the name of everybody sitting on your row today at church? Have you been in their home yet? Have you invited them in your home? Well, pastor, I don't know them. They're a bit of a... Stranger, Uh uh-huh. That ought not be true among the family of God. Oh, we... we, we We would give plenty of money to make sure somebody in Ethiopia had food. But it's way too risky to go to somebody's house for a connect group who I don't know very well. Oh, I'm getting all up in your Christian mug today. (laughs) Jesus says, how you treat the people sitting on your row is how you treat him. And you're going to give an account for that one day. I'm going to give an account for that one day. Because you aren't the body of Christ. We together are the body of Christ. This is why in our journey to Easter, we're encouraging you, don't just do the fellowship meal and communion with just the people you're related to. Do it maybe with somebody sitting across the room from you. Because what you do to the least that you know, to the brothers and sisters that you know the least, that you're doing to Jesus Christ himself. Friends, there is a stirring among us this year, over the last year, where our church body is moving from being familiar and friendly, because in a small town, you might know someone's name, but that doesn't mean you know them. We're trying to move from being familiar and just friendly to having a sense of family, because the sense of family that we have in our midst is the sense of love and evident of the love for the people around us. Can I just say this too? It's not that we aren't treating sinners correctly that people hate God. It's because we haven't learned to love the body of Christ correctly that people have yet to discover what it's like to love God. See, it was designed to be such that when people who weren't in the family of God, weren't in the church, saw how well the church was taking care of each other, they'd be like... That's not fair. I want somebody to help take care of me. And they would recognize that the reason we did it, it wasn't because they had the secret handshake and took the cup and the bread and were a part of the family of God and knew the secret entrance code. It was because the people of God were loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's supposed to be the greatest witnessing tool that we have. And Jesus goes on and he ends his little articulation of the end of times and how we're supposed to await for him with these words. Verse 46. And then they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into 
eternal life. Jesus is a righteous king and the just judge. All of these sections in Matthew 25 end with judgment being distributed. Accurately and justly distributed. All of them end in judgment. All of them end in that way. Why? Because every person on the planet's life will end with judgment. When the end comes, judgment will be there. And in that reality of judgment and justice being executed, you have to understand there will be rewards and there will be punishment. Because can you really have justice if there is no punishment? Is that really justice? Hell is one of those doctrines in the Christian faith that is not easy to discuss. We, we don't really want to talk much about it. We, we'd rather kind of push it away and just not really think about hell. Well, let's talk about heaven. In fact, we want to talk about heaven so much, we put people in heaven I'm not sure Jesus would put in heaven. But you realize that 13% of Jesus' teaching and over half of his parables had to do with hell, punishment, judgment, and God's wrath? Jesus talked about it plenty. In fact, in episode 25 of the King Jesus Gospel, I, I articulated and walked you through many scriptures talking about hell specifically and talked about some of the key theological frameworks around hell today that are common and understood within our life. You can go back and look, and look at it there. J.C. Ryle says it like this, if I never spoke of hell, I should think that I had kept back something that would have been profitable. I should look on myself as an accomplice of the devil. Whew. Those are some strong words. C.S. Lewis said it like this, and he was correct when he wrote, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this doctrine, if I had the power to do so. But the doctrine of hell has the full support of Scripture, specifically our Lord's own words, and it has always been held by Christendom, and it also has the support of reason. C.S. Lewis would go on to say that there are two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell have chosen it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. And those who knock, it will be opened to them. D.A. Carson said, in Jesus' teaching, sin always leads to hell. And that is the ultimate reason why sin must be taken seriously. 2 Corinthians 5, 8 and 10 says this, Yes, we are fully confident and we would rather be away from these earthly bodies for then we will be at home with the Lord. So whether we are here in this body or away from this body, our goal is to please God. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. And we will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. Romans 2, 5 and 11 says, But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming where God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who believe for, who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness there will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil for the Jew first and also for the Gentile but there will be glory and honor and peace from God for all who do good for the Jew first and also for the Gentile for God does not show favoritism in other words we're all standing in the same judgment Romans 2.16 says, This is the message I proclaim, that the day is coming when God through Christ Jesus will judge everyone's secret life. Friends, 
all of these scriptures and the way scriptures themselves talk about judgment in the end. Talks about it in a manifold way and a multi-viewpoint. It's led many people to think that maybe there would be like multiple types of judgment and places of judgment. I really think that there's only one judgment that is coming. Daniel 7 describes it one way. Jesus, throughout his teaching, describes it another way. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 describes it in another way. And John in Revelation 20 describe it yet another way. All articulating the same thing. That when Jesus returns in glory, the shepherd himself will separate out sheep and goats. Those clothed in the righteousness of Jesus who have given him their allegiance and loyal love and those who have lived unrighteous lives trying to do good works on their own without first loving God. Those who have lived for themselves and their own namesake and fame. Those who have lived according to their preference and personality traits versus the person of Jesus that lives and resides on the inside of them. There is one judgment and it is coming when Jesus returns. Justice does involve punishment, but justice also involves bringing back into balance that which was off kilter to begin with. See, part of the judgment that Jesus brings is a restoration of all because evil is removed forever. The flourishing things of God's good earth that were originally created and blessed can begin to flourish again without the stain and penalty of sin in our midst. At the end of the day, friends, unbelievers receive a judgment and condemnation. Believers receive judgment and commendation. Enter into your, your reward. Well done, good and faithful servant. You stewarded your life well. You cared for the body of Christ well. You loved and forgave and served and were generous and invited in and we're welcoming to the people in the family of God. Come on in, good and faithful servant. Here's the commendation of your Lord as we judge and examine your heart. Friends, we are all invited into an allegiance that is found upon a quality relationship with Jesus Christ that is now and an ongoing partnership and fellowship with the family of God. This is the invitation that Jesus invites us into. He doesn't invite us into an individual commitment. He invites us into a communal surrender and service. To love those among us, to serve those among us, to care for those among us, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Sheep and goats. Righteous and unrighteous. Beloved of God and those who love their own lives so much. There is a distinction, and Jesus is saying, I'll separate it out. He is worthy. He is the king. And his sacrifice on the cross and our loyalty to him in exchange for that gift is the righteousness we get to have that he's looking for. And when he opens the book, like Revelation 20 says, Will your name be found in the Lamb's book of life? Those names written in them are the ones who have been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, who have recognized the truth of him on the cross and said, my life is now yours. Let me love you, Jesus, as I love your body and your family. Those clothed in the wool and righteousness of Jesus. That's where I want to be. That's where I want you to be. That's where I want us to be. And that's what Jesus is saying. When I come back, all of these things are happening. So await my arrival correctly. Don't be passive. Be active. Active in your loyalty to him. Active in your love for the family of God. Active in your care for the people of God. Active in your worship for the king himself. That's the invitation of heaven today. Would you stand with me? Would you just bow your heads, close your eyes just for a minute? And just ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit,
how am I doing loving my brothers and sisters? Not how are they doing loving me? How am I doing loving the family of God? Lord, we want to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that involves loving those that you've put us in a family with. Jesus, I pray that you would seal these words in our hearts and we would remember that you are holy. You are worthy. You are the lamb that was slain for us, for our sins, for the things that we do that disconnect us from a life of God. The things that we do when we mistreat the people around us, the things that we do when we judge the people around us, the family of God, the things that we do when we ignore the needs of the people that sit around us, the, the things, Lord, that often don't bring glory to your name. Lord, would you help us to love you right, to honor you correctly, to give glory where it's due. And Lord, it's also in remembering that while we were still sinners, you died for us, that you allow us to show grace and love and kindness and compassion to the people around us, to the family of God around us. And we pray this today, that you would strengthen us, open our eyes to see this, that you would help us to steward and be active in our allegiance and love for you, our King. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the people of God said, Amen. I really hope today's message was life-giving. As a church, we want to help you encounter God and take another next step in your allegiance to Jesus. I want to ask you to take a step right now, in fact. Would you just share this message with a friend? Maybe post it on your social, text a coworker the link. Just be sure to include something that you learned or how it impacted you personally. When you do that, you get to be a part of seeing faith come to life in someone else. And don't forget to visit our central hub faithchurchks.org. You'll find other next steps that you can take in your faith, including giving and partnership with us as we help others encounter Jesus like you've encountered him. Hey, we love you. And until we get to hang out again, remember, don't shrink back from your faithful allegiance to King Jesus.